What's going on, everyone? You're tuned into the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's episode is with Michael Barlow. Michael is the founder and CEO of Furnish, a startup that offers consumers a way to rent upscale furniture and decor online. Prior to founding Furnish in 2017, Michael was a vice president at Adam Tickets and an investment banker at JP Morgan. We talked about everything from Michael's background, life as a college athlete, his takeaways from working on Wall Street, what he believes makes a great storyteller and how it translates to business, the early days and challenges of building Furnish, and the future he envisions for the company and beyond. Here we go. Yeah, it's such a, to take me back all the way to my childhood, I, 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 it's, a, it's a great start. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, my family was from the East Coast, so they moved out there for college and sort of why leave when it's sunny all year round was their impression at the time. And Ari- look, Arizona is a great place to grow up. Um, I, I always say that, although I, I, I'm not moving back. Don't tell my parents. Um, you know, growing up, I was definitely more of a artistic kid, whether it be, you know, painting, drawing, like sculpture, like anything, like music. I was playing multiple instruments at like age 10. Then it's an interesting story uh, that we tell around the family. My, my parents thought it would be behoove me to have more friends. So they, <laughs> so they shifted my trajectory to sports um, and said, you're now spending all your time playing sports. And um, that became high school for me. And then, you know, I was a college athlete as well. And so I got really deep into that and kind of put this old, uh, put that original version of myself on a back burner, but it's come back in many ways as an adult. Did you like when you, I mean, you guys, when you're in high school or even younger, like, did you sort of like fit in with the crowd or, or were you more of like an outcast or just sort of like on your own? Yeah, no, I, that was the, the, you know, my parents wanted to make sure I was fitting in. Right. So I think all parents, <laughs> all parents probably do. Um, but sports was definitely uh, a path for me in kind of late middle school and high school, for sure. Um, that's where my identity started to revolve around. Um, and specifically, I, you know, the sport I ended up playing for a long time was basketball. So, you know, that was my core kind of shared passion with my core friend group all the way through, you know, through the end of college. But it's interesting as your priority. I did, yeah, at a, at a small college outside, outside New York City called, called Hobart College. Cool. And, um, and so did that mean like, you know, sort of focusing on basketball, did that mean putting this kind of sort of creative side of yours on hiatus in a way, or just like not really, you know, being as in tune with it as you may have been if you just stuck to that? A hundred percent, Pat. I always kind of, there was this commercial um, growing up that I saw like watching football or watching TV or otherwise, where, you know, the, uh, the drummer for Blink-182 like goes down a different path and like meets a bodybuilder. And instead of, you know, becoming the drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got the, uh, that's right. Um, instead of becoming a drummer, he becomes a bodybuilder and the world is kind of so much worse for it. And I always was like relating that back to my life as a kid. And I was like, oh, like I was this path forced upon me, but you know, it was, a. Uh, it, it, it ended up all just generally working out. I think at the end of, uh, kind of my, I think sportsmanship, it was a, you know, I, I've definitely found a more creative lens in my professional career 
And you know who knows how the, the it all would have worked out. I might be in the exact same place today, <laughs> you know, at early thirties than I if I would have pursued that other path. But uh, yeah, it's it's definitely just an interesting thing to think about on my end. Michael, I'm curious, you know, on the basketball court, what was your role, and you know, what type of a player were you? Right? Were you the leader? Were you the support? Were you the you know, talk to us about that, because I'm assuming that a lot of that translates into who you are as a leader today. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I was the I was a very consistent player. Like I wasn't necessarily flashy. You know, I am quite tall um, and modestly athletic, I'll say, but probably just because I'm tall. Um, but I would tell you uh, pushing six, five. I mean, modestly tall. Wow. Um, Nice. On Zoom, you never know. So I meet some new like teammates in person. You, you, <laughs> yeah, you never know. Um, you know, but on the basketball court, it was I was definitely a very consistent player. Like strong basketball IQ is what I hung my hat on. So like running plays and playbooks and stepping up to take charges on defense, which pissed the other team off. Um which pisses me that guy when you have like this flashy play and then someone's like taking a charge and you like lose the bucket. Um, so, so funny, but it was, it was consistency. And then I really focused kind of as a small forward, I focused on just doing like doing the things that no one wanted to do, like not necessarily getting the rebound, but tipping the rebound out. So to give our team another chance was like my go-to move. Um, you know, I was very focused on the technical mechanics of a jump shot. Um, and so my favorite play is uh, is kind of trailing a guard charging down the middle, and he flips the ball back for a top-of-the-key three-pointer. Um, and I could hit that literally seven out of ten times. Um, and I thought there was never an excuse to miss a wide-open shot. So free throws, like I was shooting over 93% you know, in college from the free throw line, which isn't Steve Nash per se. And I was like, you know, why isn't that a hundred? But like, there are instances where you, man, like, I mean, you know, you can hit your free throws and you get it at three. You're, you're, you know, you're in a good place, was, I guess, on the court. It, it, it was good, but it was very just consistent. And so I wasn't flashy. I wasn't like dunking over people. I was never on highlight reels. Um, but I was a guy that people like to play with. What does it take to be that consistent, I guess, in your perspective when it comes to just sports or just in general, but like, what was your approach to training? Like, was it mental as well as physical? And if it was like, how did you balance it all out? Was there like a specific approach or did it come naturally? to you? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot, there's a level of discipline, right? Um, you know, it's not like what we'd say the Michael Phelps level of discipline where I work out 40 hours, you know, a day <laughs> and, like for a year straight, never miss a day. Um, but there's a certainly a level of discipline to to kind of maintain, you know, endurance or otherwise. But like mentally on the court, you you can get fired up, but you can never let your emotions run away with you because then you'll just make a, you know, what I would qualify as a dumb decision that would then impact, you know, your foul count, which puts the other team the line or otherwise, because like you got pissed off and you hacked someone. Like you can have that, but I always found I always found it you know, difficult to justify um, a situation like that because it puts, you know, it, it, it puts your team at jeopardy. Um, and, you know, as I talk about this more with you guys right now, it's like, you know, so much of this translates to starting, starting a business. Right. Um, 
but yeah, it's definitely, definitely a level of level of uh, kind of emotional control and, uh, and, and discipline. I'm glad you got to that realization, you know, a few minutes into the podcast, because we try to focus a lot on the founders early days so that the folks who are listening who are out there, you know, can relate to you guys, right? And say, wow, you know, I used to play basketball. I used to play softball. I used to, you know, take dance lessons, whatever the case may be. Like, that's something that you've all done as a kid, right? So what did those learnings translate to me now being an adult professional? And how can I take advantage of some of the things that I might have been good at as a kid and apply them to my life, my work, my relationships, right? And obviously for you, you know, basketball played, you know, a very important role. But did you ever think you were going to go professional or did you know that there's going to be an end to this one day? So I need to figure out like a backup option or something else that I got to, you know, you know, build skills in. Yeah, I actually I had a number of folks from our team go play professionally, mostly in Europe. Um, you know, anyone in the D1 to D3 circuit, we had, you know, we were a very good team on the D3 level. We, you know, competed against D1 teams that went to the NCAA tournament. And, um, you know, I, I didn't really want to, I think by the end of four years of college ball, it was a, okay, I'm, t- I'm totally ready for another path. Like one, um, you sacrifice so much of a college experience in the, in the U S to, uh, to play a sport. Uh, my wife's also, she was an athlete at Notre Dame. And so she kind of went through the same thing. Um, but I, I was excited for a new challenge and, you know, I took, as, as LeBron says, he takes his talents to South beach. You know, I took my challenge to kind of corporate America in New York city, not a very creative place I'll say, but it was a new challenge and a totally new, uh, like ecosystem for me then. So I, I think I saw that you had studied economics and political science. Was was like the vision that you would end up in if you weren't going to go down like a you know basketball path that you would end up on Wall Street and working? I think you thought it was like an investment banking role. Um, like, is that was that the plan? Like, or why? And if not, like, how did you end up there? Why did you decide that, to do that after college? Yeah, I I don't want to throw like liberal arts under the bus, but I will. Uh, or maybe I'm not even throwing it under the bus per se, but like all the skills, all the like skills, I'm, I'm doing air quotes for everyone listening, um, that you learn or classes that you take in a liberal arts education, there's no real application technically to a job you're going to get, right? You know, sure, it teaches you, you know, what it does do is it gives you a creative like framework of how to think about things and connect different things. And so going into interview processes, uh, really my junior year of college, it was a, okay, how do I leverage the fact that I know nothing <laughs> into, into a strength, right? Because you're competing against, you know, I, I ended up uh, at JP Morgan to start my career, but you're competing against, you know, kids that are graduating with degrees in finance and accounting from all the Ivy League schools and, you know, Notre Dame as like a non or like all these very top tier schools with like, some of them have investment banking programs. <laughs> I have an investment banking degree undergrad, you know, and I have this kind of like, you know, I wrote this dissertation for my senior year for, uh, for like politics and religion, which was like, you know, 65 pages and like no one else had done that. And so they're like, tell me about your greatest accomplishment in college. And so in these interview processes, I would just talk about things that they didn't even understand, couldn't relate to. And then it was like a, it was a, it, it came for them like, oh, we have this like quota of liberal arts p- 
people who we can bring in that know nothing, honestly, as an intellectual diversity play. And so I played up like, oh, this is intellectual diversity. You don't want all accounting majors from Ivy League schools in your training, in your training class program. Um, and that was the angle I took. I will say that folks that I know that went to a liberal arts college are a lot more adaptable, right? At least from what I've seen. They're easily moldable into different things, could play different positions, can learn new skills because they've kind of been exposed to a bunch of different things. Like there's several people at my company that had nothing to do with real estate or finance or anything of that nature, kind of like you, Michael, but came from a philosophy background or something of that nature. And they're just very good at thinking, which means that their IQ is probably very, very high. And they can be taught certain things and certain skills. I mean, I'm just a believer that you could be taught certain skills. It's whether or not you want to do them, right? And I don't think education Mm -hmm. plays a part in that. I do think that education, you know, and I guess that system of school helps you to meet certain people, be exposed to certain things, industries, et cetera, that can help kind of propel your career. But, you know, I'm curious, you know, for you, you say that it really didn't play a role in getting that job. I mean, would you, looking back, not have gone there? Would you have rather gone to, you know, a Harvard, an Ivy League, or another sort of, you know, top college? It's funny, like, can't, can't. Can, could I? <laughs> you know, I had I had a couple I had a couple opportunities on the basketball level, but um, you know, I, I I totally value the experiences that you had. Right, you, you, in college, you really it could be just a a journey in socialization, um, right? How to interact and socialize with people, and how to build communication skills, and like discover and find out like what your passions are. Because we grew up in like grew up in Arizona, like. I talked about like the the like gear shift in my own life because of my parents' strong will. <laughs> you know, like how, how the heck are you going to be exposed to you know other people and make decisions for yourself? I mean, college is a perfect time for that. Um, and so I, it's tough to like look back and see how things would be differently, uh, posh. But I I do think that it's um, you know to 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 your other point, maybe it's Pat's point, but you learn all the like people can be taught so many skills to get a job done and it's probably better that they learn those on the job at the end of the day um because again like even if you have like a technical mathematical economic background and i took a lot of that from linear linear algebra to uh like applied mathematical economics and like all that but that that didn't even help me at all in investment banking like none of those equations like investment banking is algebra and communication (laughs) so it's like um Maybe Wall Street makes their jobs you know, hard, hard, sound way more technical than they are. But for a large sense, that's what it comes down to. And, and Microsoft PowerPoint. Yes. Or Excel. Or Excel. Of course. They're both of those. But that's just algebra at the end of the day and communication, right? For, uh, you were there for five years, which I think is lo- longer than the average uh, you know, time someone lasts in an investment banking position. What was your experience like? Uh, do you recommend it to people that are perhaps maybe thinking about it as a career? Um, and and uh, I guess what type of skills do you learn that could apply to other things, perhaps being an entrepreneur or founder or CEO or what have you? You know, Pat, really good question. I think it is a very strong networking opportunity. It's like a, it's like if college is a good networking opportunity or socialization opportunity, like your professional career is a really strong place to build a network. You know, me for one, like day one of training, 
I met the woman that is, you know, now my wife. <laughs> so like first day out of college and that's, you know, it wasn't, it was like almost coincidental. We just stayed friends for many years, but that aside, you do, you know, in any corporate job, banking, consulting, kind of less, maybe less technical than going into kind of a legal or medical field, which requires continued education. Um, you do learn like some fundamental skills of how corporate America works and how people have, you know, generations before us have climbed like a ladder and gotten promotion after promotion, after promotion and guided their careers over 20, 30 years at a specific company, which sounds crazy to me. And shoot, looking back, you know, five years at a company, a corporate company also sounds crazy, but guys, the reason I was there is because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Right. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. Like all my classmates had left. Like, as you say, Pat, it's a two year like in and out. Typically, you know, you get this experience and you go to like another job um, that you're more passionate about. But I couldn't justify like going into a private equity job or even a venture job and continuing on that investing or like financial advisory services side. because I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that, but I stayed doing it because I, <laughs> cause I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. Um, and that was like, no, of the industry. And obviously a lot's happened in the last even year, couple years when it comes to investment banking and just like companies perhaps going public or the like mergers and acquisitions or different areas of it. How do how do you think the future of iBanking looks like? Like, do you think that, uh, it's going to be as prevalent in those processes as it is today or was, you know, five, five, 10 years ago, or, or do you think it's just a, just a sign of times and it's just like, it's going to adapt as things change. Well, well, I'll tell you what, Pat. If the have you ever read Michael Lewis's books? I mean, he's wrote he's wrote, written a ton Liar's of Poker. Liars Poker is a big one, right? And then Moneyball, but Liars Poker is actually the one I'm referencing. You know, for me, yeah. awesome book. If you actually ever like, when we get together in person, we should play Liars Poker the game with dollar bills. Like we, <laughs> so, you know. Like, uh, it's a it's 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 a fun game. Um, there's lots of digital iterations of it now. But you know what I will say is that the smartest minds used to go to Wall Street in the 80s and 90s, and even after kind of the dot com boom, you know the mid 2000s, and that's where you found like some of these egregious stories of like ostentatious wealth displays and renting helicopters, and you know the classic Wolf of Wall Street and Jordan Belfort, like all of those stories. I mean, those were so real. But they had like biggest personalities and the greatest minds going there because that's where kind of society was rewarding people financially. You know, you fast forward to post kind of the financial crisis, 2008 and beyond. I mean, the world of technology and entrepreneurship is now where the most like lucrative um, opportunities lie. And so, you know, whereas uh, so many of, I'd say, like top tier talent used to go to New York City or Chicago in these financial jobs, they're going to San Francisco or, you know, now everything's so distributed. Like San Francisco or is it Austin or Dallas or Denver? Miami. Miami, who knows? Um, but they're going to, to work at companies that are, you know, paying comp- comparable to what investment banking was paying in its heyday right out of college. Um, so it you know, it's just a shift of kind of a redistribution of talent, and with that, Pat, I think has come a you know the whole idea of like the financial innovation around a SPAC is spun up by 
uh, you know, it's all over the news now. One of our investors is on CM Spencer Raskoff, who uh, I know you both know has been on the news like every week. Everything's <laughs> like talking about it, you know. But these are invent these, like these are you know quote unquote inventions of entrepreneurs um, inventing like new products to maximize value for you know what were formerly small companies. You know, taking a look at the, what was formerly a traditional path to an IPO and, and reimagining that. You know, that level of creativity has driven to just a new place. And that's like one financial instrument per se. But like, you know, with smart minds really going elsewhere and dedicating so much brain power, I think those industries will naturally, you know, to take greater control over the economy, so to speak. And investment banking, what was like the top tier high flying job for the greatest minds for decades, you know, is no longer uh, is no longer, which means that their relevance will, you know, naturally come down a notch. Again, one person's opinion perhaps. Well Michael, you know, continuing on your opinions, uh what I'm really curious about, and I think a lot of people could find value in, uh, and, and something I still think about all the time, uh, is, you know, this idea of, you know, after college, you know, going and pursuing, you know, a job that will make you pretty damn good money, right? Investment banking or, you know, software engineering or any job that has a lucrative kind of upside to it in terms of the financial payout versus going and building skills, Right you know, kind of eating shit for three, four, five years and just learning on the job, right? You know, I know it's a tough, you know, question and the answer can, there's no wrong answer, but I guess based on your opinion and your thoughts and experience, what should or how should a college student who's just graduating or about to graduate or even a grad student, how should they think about those two paths? I mean, that would always imply that going into a role in investment banking isn't Eating shit for five years because it's sort of, it's sort of a. <laughs> sure, it's not, they're not mutually yeah. it's different type of shit. You, you eat different the payout, the payout yeah. is pretty good. Um, you know, you can wear nice clothes while you're eating shit. You can wear nice. It's a, it's, it's a unique opportunity. Um, you know, I think the, I, you know. Just one anecdote. I think a lot of my a lot of my friends who are probably happiest right now um, didn't necessarily start on like a traditional. I, I think software engineers may be very very different than kind of I'd say finance finance and consulting. Um, but a lot of my friends that are happiest got a year or two of experience on the corporate side. You know, some went to CPG branding, and then they went kind of the more small business route. Um, not necessarily founders out of the gates, but I think they've been kind of the happiest and maybe, you know, from a professional trajectory, feeling the most rewarding, rewarded. You know, some of the friends who are the least happy about where they are, are the ones who did a decade on financial, you know, professional services and sure have more money than the rest of us right now, but doesn't mean they're kind of the most the most empowered or the most professionally rewarded. So there's definitely what I'd say is there's a balance. I, I would say that, you know, if we're talking to college graduates here, it's, at you know, in the financial crisis coming out of college right around that time, there was, like, there's a lot of negative publicity for anything to do with Wall Street. I mean, I think 
Vanity Fair had this famous um, this famous uh, magazine cover that had a vampire squid as Goldman Sachs. I mean, just an amazing piece of art. And you know, everyone was vampire squids. I don't even know that <laughs> what that is, but it sounds terrifying. Um, yeah. And and we're in a very situation today, right? Like folks that were going through the you know uh, GFC and what we're going through now with the pandemic. Sure, it's not a financial crisis per se. I think that might come soon enough. Uh, but there's another crisis that affects people's livelihoods, yeah. affects people's jobs, right? So mindset-wise, it's not much different, right? Positive versus negative-wise, people, there is a lot of negativity out there, unfortunately. Um, so I think, you know, it is important to really balance and, out, you know, weigh out what's best for you long-term. But sometimes, you know, what we've learned, I guess, through this podcast is a lot of times, a lot of people don't really have an option, right? Sometimes you get out of college, you have so much debt. Your parents are living paycheck to paycheck. You have to pursue money. You have to try to get a job that's going to make you the most amount of money and then maybe figure it out, you know, later, maybe pursue your dreams later on. Did you feel like that was the case for you or did you feel like, you know, you could play, I don't want to call investment banking safe, but like, you know, you could play it a little safer in terms of not going out and pursuing entrepreneurship or pursuing whatever your passions were. Yeah. You know, to, 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 to reframe it, I think it's, uh, if we, I think about things in in terms of like learning curves, right? And so for me, I knew nothing about what I was going to get into. It kind of circles back to that whole interview process, uh, the intellectual diversity. Right. Um, and so I was like, this is an exciting learning curve for me. Sure, you know, I'll be in New York City making a lot of money, which will be a great like socialization experiment. But this is a brand new learning curve. And shoot, if I actually had a degree in finance or accounting, I feel like I wouldn't even be on this like, same learning curve. And so I'd probably want to do something like I'd do something in politics or like, you know, something on the startup side um, right out of the gates. So, you know, that learning curve really burns off after two years. And so, you know, I transferred two times inside the bank to different groups across promotions, you know, from leverage finance, M&A, and um, just to keep those learning curves alive. And I was really figuring out what I wanted to do. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, I was kind of done with kind of that corporate America learning curve. I think a lot of people feel that way. And actually, as a generation, you know, millennials and Gen Zs were actually empowered, like through culture and society, to jump, let's say, from those corporate rungs earlier rather than later. Whereas our parents were not. You know, you could talk about, um, you know, how you frame the the, the question, kind of. You know, you don't really have options or you took an easy path, so to speak. But I think it can this learning curve analogy and a, kind of a monkey swinging from one to another to another. That's where, like, from an intellectual perspective, I think I personally find a lot of fulfillment. And, you know, as soon as I decided I wanted to go the startup route, this was six years ago, um, I, like, left on a dime. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to go to this company in a storage closet cross-country in Venice, California, um, and live in a garage and work with a team of 10 people to build this thing. Like what an amazing learning curve and a cool experience, right? Pick your pay, you cut it by 65%. Uh, but that kind of didn't matter um, <laughs> to, to, to me at that point because, hey, we were going to make it big at a startup. <laughs> Tell me, you're talking about, I think it's Adam Tickets, right? You you went to uh, start yeah. working there, which is how did that, how did you even find out about them? You know, how did, how did you find out about this company that was in a garage? Like, wh- how did the opportunity come across you? And why did you decide that, you know, this was what you wanted to do? And what was the role? 
Yeah. So my, uh, you know, my uncle's an entrepreneur out here in LA and he had invested in the company. And so I was chatting with him around just like what, what I call, he's a member of my ki- kitchen cabinet, right? So it's, you know, folks I speak with when I'm trying to shape and define my life, which sometimes become echo chambers if you're not careful. So you know, be careful as you, you know, who you're talking to and finding advice from. But, you know, he's always been a good outside the box thinker. And, you know, I was looking at a number of startups at the time and I feel like I had a good financial set of skills and backgrounds. And so I joined you know, this company as the first kind of finance and BD employee um, in summer 2015. And I thought it was a cool idea, right? It was a ticketing technology at the time based on kind of this social engagement interaction and inviting your friends to things and seeing what your friends wanted to do. It was a layer of just, again, social engagement that didn't exist in either Ticketmaster or Fandango or, you know, uh, StubHub or any of these um, like big established public companies or corporate owned entities. And I thought we could really disrupt that. And, you know, I was kind of big on live events and, you know, enjoyed music and enjoyed movies. And I thought this had really wide application. Um, And so also I was ready for something new as you, as you both know, and kind of taking, uh, taking those learnings to, again, another learning curve. So um, I guess, so what did you, what was the biggest takeaway from working at a startup that perhaps it wasn't your business? It was just kind of, you know, you're an early employee and you're seeing the growth and whatnot. Like, what were your biggest takeaways there? And I guess walk us through why you decided to leave and did you decide to just jump, jump into Furnish right away or did you do other things between that time? Yes, it's it's funny to to bubble your uh, your learnings from a from kind of two plus years at a startup into into a couple talking points. I do think yeah, I know it's, it's like a ten year journey in two years. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's like this totally compressed uh, moment in time. But um, you know, I think it's learning how to storytell was a big part of that. Um, you know, our CEO, who's now one of our, you know, our investors uh, at Furnish, um, you know, he was a kind of quickly cry- climbing um, engineer at Amazon, um, kind of built a, I don't know if it was a team of a thousand kind of product and engineers folks uh, building all of Amazon's um, Southern California uh, presence. Uh, his name is Amish Palaja. He's now a CTO at a company called OfferUp, which is also in like furniture resale, which is so funny. Um, now, but you know, he is one of the most compelling storytellers that I think I'd ever really encountered. Um, and you know, his his co-founder, very strong storyteller as well, a guy named Matthew Bacall. Um, and I thought it was a very, you know, I was taking a huge kind of risk and rolling the dice and pay cut even join that company. And so, you know, landing there, I think, okay, how can I absorb as much from my bosses here as I can and grow quickly? And so being in a finance function in a, in a business that needed a lot of capital to survive, you know, we ended up raising over a hundred million dollars in two years, like fantastic amount of money. And, you know, we had a bunch of strategic backers, you know, we had The Rock, like meeting The Rock and pitching 
Dwayne Johnson. Like, the, <laughs> talk about an experience, right? Same thing, J.J. Abrams and Steven Spielberg and kind of a lot of folks in L.A., so to speak. You know, this was an entertainment technology platform, um, ultimately what it became. But I think the storytelling aspect has been so critical because storytelling... Michael, when you, when you say that, what do you mean by that, right? Like, you hear people that are storytellers, but, like, what makes a great storyteller and how does that translate to being good at business? Oh, it, it doesn't translate to being good at business. <laughs> not, not in the case of, you, know, you look at WeWork, I mean, literally the best storyteller probably out there. Uh, I think Jared Leto is playing him in a new film, which is going to be awesome. Um, but Adam Newman, I mean, like the most compelling storyteller probably that's in the past decade. I, I don't, I mean, Obama was pretty good too, <laughs> but Adam Newman <laughs> was, was great. Um, you know, how does it translate to business? I think it needs to be coupled with a lot of different things. So, you know, you can paint a picture of the future in a meaningful way and get people excited. You get consumers excited. You get, you know, a very smart team excited to join you. I mean, that's just such a critical part. You know, team building is something that I'll, I'll, I'll go into in a minute because uh, I feel super strongly about that and kind of a more academic approach. Softer skills, is that what you refer When you say... Somebody who's a great storyteller. Is that somebody who has the softer skills, you know, that can go out, be the face, raise the money, you know, hire people, motivate people, set visions? Is that that role? Some of it, I'd say, Posh. You know, when you say kind of in, kind of set and set goals, recruit people, like sort of, I think if you're if you're just painting a picture of the future that you get people excited about, whether it be like high powered execs to come join you or whether it be like new investors to come finance your vision, like absolutely. And that's a notion of, um, it, it's some level of like just conviction and your own belief of what the future is going to like going to look like. And if you can imagine like for furnish, you know, our, our vision and our story is to really to make it effortless to create a home. Like you should never have to worry about making your home look like an absolute fantastic reflection of yourself and something that you're proud to show off to friends and family. And hey, when you're moving from San Francisco to Austin, like the rest of that city, you shouldn't have to like pay a cent to move anything. And you should just be moving into a new place that's already set up to spec for you. And, you know, that's kind of a, it's a compelling vision from a consumer perspective. And yes, from an investor perspective as well, because it's kind of so relatable to so many people's like journeys and paths, you know, for a, a certain period of time after college. But, you know, back to your, your, your wider point, Posh, storytelling is only part of the equation. And what I learned at Adam was, you know, I was originally, it was very alluring to have such great storytellers with such great pedigrees. Um, you know, pitching such a such a vision, I just was so amped to be a part of it. And you see a lot of like people get excited to join high power startups, and great investors are excited to to back them as well. But you know, the actual side of executing a business is it's such a I want to say it's a science, but it's so unique because every team is so unique, and the dynamics of every team is so unique, and kind of learning a level of adaptive management and adaptive leadership is kind of this next level of, uh, you know, of storytelling that you don't really see on like the big screen or in conferences or maybe even on podcasts. Um, and that's something that I think I've 
you know, to learning at Adam, they did a, they did a good job. I think there was an opportunity to do a better job. Um, I think, you know, the whole team will acknowledge that too. And something that we're focused on at our business now is how do we, how do we provide kind of those tools and those guardrails and that kind of a contextual, contextual based leadership and that adaptive management to make everybody do the best work they possibly can. And kind of, we're talking in a time where, you know, the other day, Jeff Bezos said he's stepping down, but like, that guy could not just storytell and paint a vision of the future around, hey, people are going to order things online, period. That's the future. Um, he was also able to drive people to do the absolute best they've ever performed. Like every day is day one. We should be fiercely afraid of our customers and our competition. Um, and like you could go on and on and on from this guy's, you know, shareholder letters, et cetera. But um, and we talk about, you know, the story, the correlation between storytelling and being good at business. And, you know, we've seen different examples in the past. Um, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this sort of concept of like the reality distortion field, which Steve Jobs famously had. And like, you know, we've seen like Travis Kalanick and you mentioned Adam Newman and all these folks. That, you know, as an entrepreneur, as someone who has like a big vision, Theranos is another example, uh, you know, great, you sort of example. are, <laughs> it's hard, to, yeah, it's hard to sort of see what's reality and what's realistic and what's possible because what, what does that even mean? You know, if, if Steve Jobs was thinking realistically, quote unquote, like would they, would Apple have become Apple? You never know. Um, so I, I'm just curious to hear if you have any general thoughts on that and and um, you know as a founder as an entrepreneur as someone who has a big grand vision how do you balance it to make sure that it doesn't come around and bite you in the ass like it did for some folks it's great it kind of the 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 analogy that comes up is you know henry henry ford i don't i feel like people don't talk about him enough these days but um you know he is just some yeah, I mean, these are these are just visionaries. Like the car should be the way people get around. Like, fine. It's like you know, if you would ask people what they want, they want a faster horse. Like, I'm gonna give them a car. Like, blow their mind. Talk about a like a kick-ass customer, like expectation exceeding um, product. Reality distortion. What what kind of brings you back down to earth? Are I'd say what brings you back down to earth? I'd say numbers and cash flow, <laughs> right? Because it all it all is gonna bubble up to how your business is performing. Um, and if you have the right people around the table to hold you accountable to how the actual business is performing against a vision, I think that's important. That's important to, um, and, you know, not to say there should be no checks. Like if people would have, you know, said to Steve Jobs, you know, hey, XYZ isn't performing today, what, what we think, like you're fired. It's like, no, actually they did say that to him and they fired him and kind of the, the, the MacBook launch, if you remember. Um, but that level of accountability, it's like, when do you hold people to that? Especially people on the, like the big picture visionary folks like a Steve Jobs or like a Travis Kalanick or Adam Newman. And I think teasing the difference is really down to the board, right? Who do you have on your, like on your, how do you approach governance in a way that you can like provide the check at the appropriate time, not too early and not too late. Whereas, okay, is this actually going to become a reality? And, you know, that's a, that's a responsibility of board directors. And again, I think choosing board directors is an art too, in terms of like experience and pattern matching, et cetera. 
it's really freaking hard because I can imagine and just being in those rooms, you know, when you're doing something that's never been done before, uh, it's hard to sort of tie it to some sort of number. Cause it's like, well, how do you, you know, how do you um, project what this is going to make or do? It's like people had never seen computers before. I'd never seen an iPhone before or an iPod. And like, it's just like a, just a totally new way or just, you know, the shitstorm that Travis Kalanick went through with Uber because, you know, there was a lot of, you know, lobbying and politics involved and this and that, that no one had ever done before, but it's easy for someone to come in after the fact and be like, all right, now that we're here, now we could run this thing, you know, smoothly without all this shit. So it is, it is very difficult. Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. I don't, there's no, there's no perfect pattern that's existed in the past at all. Um, so it's, it's super, it's challenging and then you get team dynamics too sure business models never been done before hence why there's so much excitement around doing it but then this team has never really worked together on this business model and sometimes like successful founders will bring great teams over from one startup to another you know that happens but it's still then you know it's not the same team and there's different dynamics because there's different challenges um and that's sort of anyway so yeah it's it's super challenging and you know how do you then and kind of for all founders or you know prospective founders, they'll really re- relate relate to this. But you know, how do you then go through a hiring process that you have to move super quickly and bring on what you think are the best talent with very limited data points, and then you add them into the mix and you count tremendously. You know, if you're a small team, and I'd say a small team is even like a team under a hundred people, still a small team. You know, everyone is like very limited degrees of redundancy. And you really count on every individual to bring their best every day. How do you, like how do you suss that out in a couple interviews? Like very very challenging to do. That's one of the hardest parts I think of starting a business, kind of building the team around it. Well, Michael, let's talk about that while we talk about and introduce people to you know furnish and how that came to be. You know, you're at Adam Tickets. Uh, you know, was it just something that was built up over time or? It was this an idea that you had written down in a bunch of, you know, in a notebook with a bunch of ideas like a lot of people do? Uh, and what finally, you know, gave you that leap of faith to say, all right, I'm ready to do my own thing. We're launching furniture. Yeah, it uh, is a very exciting time. I say 2017, you know, the first few months of exploring and then starting a business when there's sort of very limited responsibility. <laughs> uh, no board at the time. So uh, it's just it's, it's super exciting time. Um, I, there wasn't a list of ideas, but I think I was slowly gathering while at Adam, here's what I really liked about how this business is built, and here's what I would have done differently. And you know, should I ever have an idea, you kind of start making a list of, you know, here are some very concrete learnings and kind of going back to kind of my disciplined or methodical approach to things generally. Um, you know, I had these documents of like things like how to approach starting a business and pick a co-founder and like flesh out an idea and build like operating metrics and a model around stuff. Um, you know, and then the idea for Furnish really emerged in spring of 2017. Um, it's a it's a good story. It's long, but I'll try to truncate it. So my um, my my sorry. You already had it in your mind that, all right, you know what? Like, I've learned a lot at this point. I feel like I know what it takes to start a business. And I don't, at the time, you didn't really know an idea, but you were just like, I know I'm going to start a business soon. 
and then the idea for Furnish came along and then the opportunity came along? Is that how the kind of it, timeline works? Yeah, Pat, it's uh, almost, I think it's, hey, starting a business would be a cool idea because I think it's a great learning curve. Um, and you kind of have this like, like, oh, like that founders are the coolest people ever. Really, we go through a lot of, a lot of pain, right? It is rewarding, but there's a lot of pain involved too. Um, you found that out after you make the leap. Um, and then, and then it was, okay, here are all the skills I want. Like I'm learning now, should I, you know, get to that point? And then the idea came and if it wasn't this idea, it probably would have been a different one. Right. And so it was, you know, it was, it wasn't a list of ideas. Let me go find the skills and conviction to go start it. It was more like, here's thing. Like you just had your like, kind of, you know, like radar on that. If anything kind of. You were just kind of you. You were being more proactive about it as opposed to just sitting around and like, if an idea comes, cool, I'll start a business. If not, I'm just going to stay doing what I'm doing. Yeah, look, Pat, ideas are cheap, right? Especially the idea that we had at Furnish. <laughs> it's a difficult business. There's so many moving parts, literally moving parts. Um, but I'm sure so many other people have had this idea. And talking to people about the idea before we launched the business, so many people were like, oh. I've always wished something like this existed. And it's like, okay, how the hell do you go execute like a physical goods, heavy logistics business, um, deep supply chain and changing of customer behavior? Like it's a challenging business. Um, not to say it's not going great. It's just, you know, it's, it, there's, there's easier businesses out there, which is probably why no one's... I would, I would assume that that last one, changing consumer behavior is probably the toughest. Right? In a way? I think... Like everything else... Sort of, Perhaps find mm-hmm. examples of, but like consumer behavior is very, very difficult. Yeah, new, and the, like what we're going through now as a business is, you know, we can kind of bounce from topic to topic is, you know, how do you more align, how do you more align with consumer expectations and what consumers think they want when you sort of know they don't want what they think they want or they think they're going to do something, but they're not actually going to do something because like data and anecdotes says they're not going to do something. And so it's like, how do you really hit that nail on the head? I think it's, it all is kind of messaging and like timing of delivery and then sales channel processes. But there's a lot of, again, it's, it's methodical, it's multi-pronged. You have to have the right team with the right playbooks and patterns to go and execute against. Uh, any- you know, it's funny, Mike, you said that a lot of people would have had this idea. I remember, I think I had told you this already when we first spoke. But Pat and I, we were literally, we had done a podcast just like this, and we were driving to get food after the podcast, and we were always just bouncing ideas. And for a time, we, we've we always hopped on different trends, you know, like one day we'll be into like, you know, CPG, one day we'll be into like sustainable, you know, clothing. sustainable clothing, SaaS. <laughs> In this period of time, we were very much into subscription businesses. And we, and we were like, okay, what do we think would work, you know? And I was like, I think like, you know, furniture rental would be pretty cool. Like every six months or so, they would change out the furniture in my apartment and, you know, in the house or in certain rooms or whatever, because you get bored of it. And it's just a way to kind of just test things out. And if I like it, I could buy that one. And we're like, ah, yeah, who's, who's going to do that? Right. Like why, why would anybody, <laughs> we kind of kill ideas. Uh, but, but, then kill ideas, we, yeah. but then we got introduced to furnish and we're like, you know what, if we came up with it, we're, we think we're smart. This must be a smart idea. And then here we are, here we are today, talking to the founder. Of this is how we're on. I'm glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so walk, walk us through the, you know, how the idea comes. What did you see? What is the opportunity? And how did you go about getting the ball rolling? Yeah, it's, uh, 
I'm going to truncate the story, as I mentioned, but the, you know, I had moved five times in seven years across three different sets of roommates from New York and LA and kind of bounced around and never really liked or was proud of the place I lived. And, you know, I think a lot of people can be like, oh, they walk into a really nicely decorated apartment. Um, and you're like, wow, I wish that, I wish that was my place. Like really, it's like, you know, would I've spent the time and money to, to get it up to like, up to that level? It's like, no, it's just too much effort or too much perceived money. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, that was all, that all happened. And I had logged those as pain points in my mind, but they were just like, they were the reality. It's like retail is retail, moving is moving. Like who's going to change these things? Um, you know, maybe you can get lucky and buy secondhand or like, you know, not move Ikea furniture because it costs more to move the furniture than it actually does to, uh, to buy new furniture, which is a funny fact, um, especially from New York. Um, but at the time, you know, spring, my, uh, my, my now wife was moving from Chicago to LA and she was, you know, for very good reason complaining about, Hey, like I can find an apartment, but getting like, I have a roommate in Chicago, getting all this new stuff moved and set up. Uh, you know, we weren't moving in together to start, uh, to start. And this is just a huge hassle. Like, can't we just like, isn't there a way to just make this easier? And so we thought about like co-living solutions, um, which she actually ended up doing right. And not that she liked any of the people that she lived with in co-living at all, which is I think the largest challenge with co-living. Um, but it was just like an easier process. Not that she liked how everything, anything was decorated or otherwise. Um, but that really got the ball rolling because then I started reflecting like with her in tandem all the times, like we had moved. Um, I told you kind of my story, but you know, her and I had met in New York, then she went to Chicago, then I was in LA and then she was moving from Chicago to LA and just talking, you know, I spent 60 hours like right out of the gates, you know, I set up interviews, one hour interviews with 60 people, like friends or friends of friends and talking about their experiences moving, their experiences with furniture. And it, it was just so apparent that these two pain points should actually be like points of joy, points of excitement. Like you're moving to a new place and setting up a new home with potentially new people. Like how cool is that? Like that should bring you an overwhelming amount of joy and excitement. So why should you have to deal with all this shit for lack of a better term? Um, and so is there a service economy solution that can deliver that for you while making you proud of the place that you live? And so, you know, at that point it was, validating a lot of the consumer demand for the idea. And then, you know, that, that was kind of phase one for me. And, and was the idea from the beginning that it would be a rental sort of subscription business and that you would also, cause, cause obviously getting the furniture is one thing, but uh, doing like the design of it and like, the, you know, kind of the interior design hat is like a different hat. Cause, and like to your point on, on, uh, you know, uh, um, I don't know what you said, what you called it, but it was kind of like, you think you think it's more expensive perceived. than perceived value. Like you think it's more expensive than it could be if you were to buy used and kind of hack it together. So did you, were you also offering that service or, or was that something that you thought, you know, we're just going to focus on having the inventory, doing the rental business and that's it. Yeah. You kind of, you kind of gradually get there. You know, at first it was, you know, validating the idea. Then it was, it was actually so funny. The manual pilot we launched was, you know, have a Google form, have people tell you what they like, then go build a PDF that's custom to people. We didn't have a website, right? And we were getting paid on Venmo. 
uh, is actually like hilarious in hindsight. We, um, you know, oh, you need living room. You like mid-century, you like these four pictures. Like, let me go snag like a bunch of stuff. And I, you know, it's either like locally sourced or from Wayfair can deliver in three days and say, this is my inventory. Do you want to like start on a leasing program with this company that doesn't really exist, sort of exists, but we have a Venmo account. Um, that's how it got started. And it was just kind of the flexibility. And it's like, oh, like you're going to source like eight pieces of furniture for me. I don't have to like search on Wayfair and type in sofa gray and get 70,000 responses and then figure out, hey, what the hell is actually the best value? Am I getting what are people saying on the review side? Like, you know, and these were one degree connections. And so they kind of trusted us and our business model. And just seeing that out of the gates in a very manual beta was was a really rewarding process. You know, you go forward now, you know, we have functionality, you know, we just launched augmented reality, which is pretty cool. Um, we just, you know, we just launched a feature where you're able to create mood boards and build rooms and then share it with your friends and kind of visualize your space that way, which is pretty cool. You know, we have a team of merchandisers who source our our product across like different style categories from mid-century to boho to industrial. And they say this goes together with this. And so like our website's like a fully functioning, uh, like all tip of the spear e-commerce, best practice, uh, merchandising uh, functionality now, which is awesome to look at, right? Given where we started on PDFs. And and from an economic standpoint, um, is is your perspective that do you think owning furniture is completely pointless or do you think that there's a subset of people that it makes more sense for and how do you view that it, it, it's a good question pat it's kind of like a philosophical question i i think i think owning furniture is the right path for most if not all people right? It's just, it's just a function of like where they are in their moment in time. You know, if you're living in a space in a new job with two roommates, you know, but you want a nice common area to entertain, like who's going to buy the sectional and then who's going to buy out the sectional from whom, so to speak. Um, Like that use case doesn't necessarily make sense. I think there's a, there's a notion of uncertainty in people's lives for a number of years after finishing college. Um, and you know, we're not just for the college educated folk too. We're, we're also, you know, we have this full lease to own, uh, kind of alternative financing solution too, where you can lease it till you've paid it off and there's no interest attached and you own a great product like CB2 style. And sometimes it's actually manufactured by CB2 because they're one of our manufacturers. Um, and we kind of give you that, that access, but I think there's moments in time where, we make sense in a meaningful way as a solution for people and as a service for people. And you kind of a more meta point, Pat, I do think, you know, a generation of people, you know, we still value ownership as millennials. Like it's not like we don't value ownership at all. We just might not value it as early as on in our lives as our parents did. Right. It was all about immediately kind of owning a home, you know, and getting a, you know, one could say the white picket fence, but I think that might even be a generation prior. Um, we're just not that married to that uh, kind of American image as a previous generation was. So we're kind of more flexible in our lifestyles. And, you know, just to double click on the one ocean notion around leasing to own, like that's important for us. It's important for our customers. If you lease something from us for 12 months and you really like it, 
just buy it out. Like you're never paying more than retail. We're all about transparency. And we think we can be an option for any kind of cohort of customers who has any degree of uncertainty in their lives and wants that level of flexibility, which shoot, I say is everyone in their 20s and 30s <laughs> these days, especially more and more towards that. Like as, as the years pass, as you've seen more data in your own business in the last four years, do you see that trending? I mean, obviously you see it trending somewhere uh, to continue on the business, but like, is that a trend that you see growing? I think anything around, you know, some durable trends that I think are driving our business are the trend of service. And so I define service as convenience. And so the notion of, you know, how we define that as businesses, you select something, it comes to you delivered and assembled and arranged for free in a week. Like for furniture, that's a kick-ass customer promise, right? And we can promise that in various regions across the country. You know, we're going to be launching, you know, more and more cities later this year, which is super exciting. Um, you know, in the service economy, trends are just so incredibly durable. Obviously, everyone's seen the success of DoorDash recently, or post, or you know, obviously Postmates bought by Uber, but. Um, what's the service that delivers all the groceries <laughs> for us? Yes. They, um, they like sometimes the fees on those are like a material amount of either the food they're bringing. Really not doing a good job branding and marketing because you should have remembered their names. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of maybe division of labor here. I, um, we mostly use kind of Amazon, Amazon fresh whole foods delivery. So, yeah, but sometimes kind of the fee on a DoorDash order is actually you're paying for convenience. People are very open to paying for convenience and trying new things. And so really focusing on that is a, such a durable trend, I think, will continue to, you know, continue to play off of. I think mobility is also a very interesting one, whether it be intercity or intracity. Obviously, we see a ton of data right now from, you know, people moving around which cities to which cities, I think. Nashville is the greatest, like the highest growing city in the U.S., quickly followed by Dallas, Austin, Miami, Denver, and kind of another cadre of cities. I mean, L.A. isn't necessarily shrinking like some other, uh, some, you know, some other coastal cities are. So we're in a pretty fortunate place. But, um, yeah, I think mobility is a correct too. Sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, the way I view a company like Furnish, um, you know, is more experiential, right? And where I really kind of draw the comparison is when we interviewed uh, Joe Fernandez, who was the founder of Joy Mode, right? Which had the similar concept of like, yeah. you know, first rent it, you know, test it out. And then if you like it, you know, buy it, right? Like own it, right? Why would you need a podcast microphone if you're not going to podcast all the time? But if you like it for a week, then just do it, right? We've been doing it for three and a half years. So now we, we officially like it and we've owned it for years. But that's the same way I see furniture, right? Is you know, how do you know it's going to look good in your house? You know, how do you know it's going to feel good for your butt? How do you know it's going to feel good for your back? Why did you try it out? You know, do you think that more than, you know, the convenience aspect of it, that, you know, there's a generation, you know, our generation, you know, specifically, that values that experience, right? Even without her, right? You know, the fact that you go and get to test it out in somebody's home. Right, that's experiential. Or you get bored and you just want completely new furniture. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> or Warby Parker, right? The experiential aspect of their business, right? I do think that experiential direct to consumer businesses that are online e commerce businesses are going to be the ones that went out. So I'm curious from your point of view, you know, is that something that, you know, 
is a trend? Is that something that is going to be here for a while in terms of the experiential component of businesses? Yeah, I mean, ex- experiential commerce and economy is, is 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 absolutely here to stay. And I I love the founders you referenced. I mean, Joe Fernandez is someone I've looked up to personally um, for a while here in the LA ecosystem, and obviously, you know, Jake as well. Uh, there's not many furniture entrepreneurs out there, let alone furniture entrepreneurs in LA. So we 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 love what they're building out there. Um, also love how it's completely non-competitive. Um, <laughs> I, I I'd say on the I mean. Delivering an amazing service is absolutely an experience. Like we have, we have hundreds of testimonials across thousands of customers now um, in the Pacific Northwest and Southern California around like, wow, that furnished delivery was, you know, one that came in the other day said, you know, made me feel like a rock star. Like, how cool is that? Like you, you order furniture and you feel like a rock star. Uh, like that's exactly the experience that we want to provide people. You know, you're moving into a new space and the day you move in, you like a couple days before you've ordered, you've ordered 16 pieces of furniture. It's all delivered and assembled before the rest of your shit arrives from your movers or otherwise. Like what an amazing experience. Um, you know, the experiential aspect of like, I want to try this. And then I might buy this or I might swap this out. Absolutely. That's, that's a real use case for us too. I'd say the, like the broader application is, you know, I live in a studio in Santa Monica and I'm just going to be here for a year and then I'm either going to move in with my significant other or move to a new city. And why would I want to, you know, how do, why do I want permanent furniture for a very temporary home? Even though I want my place to look like it has permanent furniture and like looks really cool um, with that, but at the end of the day, you, you know, that's not going to look good in your next place. You want your next place to be set up to spec. Maybe it's like regional differences. If I'm moving to Denver or New York or Miami, um, maybe it's just spatial differences too. So kind of to take it back again to sort of like the beginning, right? Um, I can imagine this would, I don't know exactly what your approach was, but was it like a capital intensive thing to start? And did you have to go out and raise a bunch of money before you actually started taking in customers that were going to, you know, obviously rent, uh, you know, your inventory and, and was it inventory that you were keeping on hand or was it sort of just like when, when they wanted some, an item, you were going to go and get it at a whatever rate, perhaps a cheaper rate than if they were to go retail. I don't know. How did, how did that all work? Yeah, it was uh it was, it, it was a learning experience getting started. Sure. Like we, we spun up, kind of some wholesale relationships. I'd spent some time in North Carolina and had kind of, by the time we launched the business, I had pretty good uh, visibility into furniture suppliers at the wholesale level that would work with us. So we, we, you know, we were never buying like retail product and then flipping it on customers. Like what we really tried to nail down is, you know, just in time inventory. And so we weren't going to go buy a bunch of stock and then try to rent it out. We were going to try to like, okay, how many customers were you expecting like in this month? Let's stock everything a couple days in advance, kind of having like one week feedback loops. That was really important to us. Now we have just so much visibility and such deep supply relationships that we just order containers, have them come, and they're mostly like, you know, on a monthly basis or mostly fulfilling demand that we know is going to be there. Um, but getting the, getting the business out of the gates, I mean, yeah, we, 
like we raised a million dollars right right on uh you know we were very fortunate to be able to do this right we had a big idea my co-founder and i he was at adam tickets very early as well vp of product he was a product technologist from amazon really good pedigree very strong network was the yin to my yang in terms of experience um was also corporate but at amazon then through a string of startups had a great exit then was at adam tickets and so it was like a good like as a team with a little bit of credibility which is you know talk for many more minutes about the importance of finding a great co-founder, uh, maybe a separate podcast or maybe a beer. Uh, we could talk about that. So, you know, we maybe one, in- huh? a, beer, a beer and a podcast simultaneously. The, the, this is good. Uh, when we get together in person, I'm excited about, you know, that potential of that. But, yeah. I mean, capital intensive business uh, a little bit to start, but then we had to figure out the, you know, there's, there's, all ways to finance like a business. One, my, you know, my co-founder is just publishing an article on non-dilutive financing that um, that Dot LA is going to be running next week. But you know, you can have debt capital, you can have venture debt, you can have you know capital leases. There's a lot of different ways where you can leverage, uh, you know, creative ways that you can finance a business like ours. And so we quickly shifted capital structure, and you know, we've. It raised $45 million across our capital structure in some creative ways. Um, and that's enabled us to grow our business in a pretty meaningful way. Uh, but if we were kind of raising equity to buy furniture every single time, you know, that would be way too expensive and dilutive for, you know. I don't think you run down, but it sounds like you're, what you're saying is you didn't go the traditional sort of venture capital route. You went through other sort of creative ways to finance. And so, Kind of walk us through like briefly, like for those entrepreneurs who are just getting started today and don't know about any of these things and are, and are thinking, you know, VC, 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 what's out there? Like, what are some ways that they could, um, besides, you know, obviously going to a bank and getting a, a loan and that kind of stuff, like what are some other creative ways? I, I, you know, that answer, I think other creative ways, I, it's a great answer. An SBA loan is a beautiful answer in a way to start a small business, right? And what are startups, small businesses? Um, so the SBA is built for that. You know, very famously, the Warby Parker team got started off an SBA loan. Um, amazing. And they were like answering customer service emails in their classroom at Wharton and they just pulled like an SBA loan while they were still in, you know, in business school. So, so we had them on the a couple weeks ago. Oh, did you? Awesome. Well, yeah. they probably have from uh from Warby Parker. Yeah, fin- 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 fantastic. So I, I definitely, again, exceptional entrepreneurs and look up to that team and, and what they've been able to build, of course. Um, but that's a really good that's a really good way to finance a business. I think, you know, the beauty of and we did go the venture route. To be very fair, we just didn't go all venture, right? We had smart investors, and then we realized, okay, what's a more efficient way to capitalize this business because we have physical assets. Um, we're going to be, and I don't actually know how Joe Fernandez at Joymo did it, but we're going to be looking for debt. I'm pretty sure, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could have been, could have been all all venture, but we, you know, we found a lot of get a lot of inventory and a lot of uh, cash tied up in his inventory. Right, and that's a real. I mean, that's a, that's like a retail model, right? Retailers have so much cash tied up in inventory. Right. There's a way to debt finance that with the right structure, and so we approached that creatively pretty early on. And I had a, you know, again from my time at J.P. Morgan, I had a pretty, a pretty decent network, um, 
and some good minds to help me think through how to do that, which was, which was awesome. Michael, I'm sure we could talk for hours, and I really do think a round two and, uh, is definitely in the picture here for us just because you know, Furnish is still at a very early stage and there's a lot of stuff that's yet to happen that you know, we would love to follow your journey. And there's been several times where we've had founders on the second, third time. Uh, but you know, just quickly, you know, at, in the last you know, three, four years now that Furnish has been you know, you know, active and going and growing, for you as a founder, what has been one of the biggest challenges and how did you overcome it? Such a good question. There's so many mountains that, uh, <laughs> that appear that you're just not, not sure they're going to appear. Um, I, it would all come down to, to team building. Honestly, I think it's a, it's a challenge. Yes. But the challenge has a, a number of different heads that you don't expect, right? Recruiting, the best team, people say that, and it's so true because the best team really elevates you as a kind of a new or potentially younger executive to perform in a way that you don't think you can. But then it's the retention side of it too, right? To keep a very high caliber team engaged, you have to really evolve and improve your own management style um, around delegation and empowerment and something I mentioned earlier around adaptive leadership. So I, I think the team building side is 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 the biggest I'd say challenge I wasn't expecting in the business. And sure, there's a lot of like operation technicalities and logistics things that like you know, and customer management and billing and all that. But that's you know, as an executive of a business at this point with dozens of employees, you say, okay, building the team is what no one tells you and like the academics of titling and the academics of providing a growth path for everybody. I mean, it's so critical for a company and so many companies get it wrong. And sometimes it's washed over because like great product market fit early, um, but it always will come back to bite you. Are you able to share a specific time you got it wrong, right? Like a time that you made the wrong hire and it wasn't, favorable to furnish. I mean, like, can you share an experience so that we have a better idea of like how that mistake came to be and how you fixed it? Yeah. It, it, there's a couple examples of like folks that we hired that we thought were rock stars uh, because they had like, you know, great pedigree. Like we hired, our, you know, our first director of marketing from Airbnb and, you know, she had just all the right tools and skills, but at the end of the day, you know, we knew pretty quickly, you know, after 60 days that we're too small of a business. And yes, you know, one can say they're excited to work at startups and, you know, can really handle kind of the multitasking and uh, wearing many hats. But at the end of the day, a lot of people can't, right? Especially when they come from, you know, Airbnb is not a small company. Even two years ago, Airbnb wasn't a small company. Um, right. So, you know, that's just one example. And again, it's, it all comes down to, and sure, we probably lost kind of a quarter of growth and potential because we hired the wrong fit for the wrong role. But a lot of companies sometimes use, lose a year in a specific function because they're not focused or they don't want to fire someone or they're like afraid of doing X, Y, Z. And that's kind of a failure in management in a pretty meaningful way. And so, again, you have to really... So, so phrase fail fast also applies to fire fast. Yeah, 
Yeah, it does. And it's nothing like personal. Like a lot of the folks we brought on and had on our team for a short period of time were great. They just weren't great for the role that we needed at the time. And shoot, right. I'm on. I hope I'm as big as Airbnb so we can have all these kind of potential mistakes washed over and be you know, a big business pitching ourselves as a startup. And that's really the point of the founder hour at this point of our kind of, you know, our, you know, this podcast, whatever you want to call it, this initiative, this project is so that other entrepreneurs that are listening in, they get to learn not from the business books or their education, but literally they can listen to Michael Barlow and say, huh, when Michael Barlow was starting and he hired a director of marketing from Airbnb, that ended up being a mistake. It might not be a mistake for that company, right? It might not. But now you have the ability to weigh those options because you know you've been exposed through your story, right? That storytelling component, right? I think good founders also listen well to other people's stories and what the experiences, what type of experiences that they've had, you know. And and, and we have no doubt, you know, that you know, Furniture is going to become a massive company. You know, you can tell just from the person that you are, and uh, you know, a lot of the time we get asked the question like, "What's something that we consistently learned or know about because of this podcast?" Right? We've interviewed hundreds. 50 plus people, 160 plus people. And I think at least for me, and I think Pat would agree is that the most successful founders were always the most kind, the most generous, the most giving with their time, with their money, with their expertise. And that reflects in the team that they built that reflects in the time they gave us just for on the, just on the podcast being transparent. And that's something that I'm sure they give to their investors. And as a result, that reflects in the product or the service that they put out. So, you know, I think that you really exemplify you know, those things. Uh, if I were, you know, predicting things, you know, I think furniture is going to do great just because somebody like you is the leader, right? And I don't say that a lot to people, by the way, because we talk to a lot of people and not everyone, you know, gives us that same sort of vibe that, you know, we want to work for that person or we want to root for them, right? It's like a team, right? You want to root for your favorite player because of not only who they are on the court, but also off the court. And this is off the court, you know? So thank you for your time, uh, you know, I think a part two is definitely something that we'll, 100%. we'll do yeah, we're looking uh, forward to in it. person. So yeah, thank you again. This has been awesome guys. Really glad to, uh, glad to have been asked with, you know, alongside the folks that Joe, like Joe Fernandez and, and, and Jake Lou. Thank you for your time, Michael. This has been awesome, man. Thanks for, thanks for hanging out with us and uh, we'll see you soon. <laughs>